starting another episode of the Square and Compass podcast. This time, I am happy, and I was talking to him uh, offline just a second ago. I'm happy to be back in the state of Washington uh, for a, another episode with a very distinguished uh, brother indeed, Right Worshipful Brother Cameron Bailey. Welcome. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It is great to have another uh, Cameron on the podcast, because as we were saying, if your name is Cameron, you're, you're definitely the best looking and the smartest of the Masons and people in general. Well, you'll get no disagreement from me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I met you or contacted you through social media uh, when I discovered your... Well, I guess it's your speech, which you transcribed, uh, so your paper, entitled The Future of Freemasonry, which I thought was terrific. And I'm really looking forward to discussing more about that paper with you. And I'm also going to leave a link in the description to this video so other brethren are able to, um, to access it, right? Because the thing about the paper is... You know, even though your jurisdiction uh, and your connection to Freemasonry is presently in Washington, the problems that you identify and the solutions that you offer really are applicable to the craft, you know, both nationally and internationally, whether it be Canada, the States, South America, Europe. Um, you know, we're all kind of seeing the same concerns and trying to figure out the, the best solutions for those concerns. Well, thank you. You know, I, I'm really pleased that, that you, uh, you enjoyed the paper, uh, that you reached out to me. I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to address your audience. Uh, like you say, I, I do think that the, the issues it touches on are issues facing uh, uh, most of our Grand Lodges and and I think it's applicable uh, to Grand Lodges, maybe not everywhere, but close to everywhere. And if it can help, you know, that that's something that, that uh, uh, I'm just honored to, to be able to offer the words. Yeah, and what I love about the paper um, is, you know, I, I think you started at the right place um, far too often, you know, so, so if you look at, say, for example, I, I believe this is an Elon Musk quote, or at least attributed to him, or, you know, Steve Jobs is another example, right? Uh, they, the, the, they don't start with, okay, what do we have and what can we do? They start with, okay, what do, what do I want? What is the goal? And then they work backwards to figure out how to get there based on what they have. You know, so often in Freemasonry, we'll say, well, we can't do X, we can't do Y because we need more members, we need more money. You're saying, what I like about this, this paper is you're saying, you know, we need to first set the goal and then we'll figure out how to get there. You know, the classic example that I, I've used before in this podcast is when John F. Kennedy, uh, you know, made the announcement that they were gonna go to the moon, uh, you know, at that point, they had managed to get one person in space for 15 minutes. Um, you know, there was no guarantee that they would be able to do it when he made the announcement. Uh, but he recognized the importance of you set the goal and then you figure out how to do it. 
as opposed to, you know, because if you just base it on what you have now, uh, you're always going to be limiting yourself. You know, it's better to set lofty goals and then you can figure out how to make it work. You know, the, the beautiful thing about people is, you know, if you set a goal, even one that is quote unquote unrealistic, uh, more often than not, people will find a way to rise to the occasion. And I think that's true of Masons as well. Yeah, I agree. I think people, they want a, they want a mission that they can believe in, you know, and, and if we, uh, if we give people that mission, they're going to figure out how to get there. And, and Freemasonry in my view is, is already properly done that, right? It's a, it's a personal quest. Well, lodges can have a quest as well. And, uh, a journey towards perpetual self-improvement. We don't have to limit that to, to Masons. And, and I think if we, as you say, set that goal, you know, men will rise to achieve it. Now, that brings up uh, a, a very um, timely question for Freemasonry, but really, I think most organizations are struggling with this in some way, shape or form. You know, what would you say is an appropriate mission for Freemasonry? Because, I mean, you, you discuss in your uh, paper, right, and this has also been discussed in books, Sins of Our Masonic Fathers, for example. Uh, you know, for a long time, the mission of Freemasonry seemed to be growth of membership at all costs with ultimately negative consequences. So how would you, as a mission statement for the craft or as a goal statement, what do you see as necessary for Freemasonry? What is the best mission for a Freemason to have and for a lodge to have? Yeah, and in my view, we don't need to look forward for that. We need to look backwards into our history. And I think the, the goal of Freemasonry is improvement of individual masons and i look back on my own life you know i getting a little personal here and i i recognize what i was when i joined the craft versus what i i am now and i believe that freemasonry has improved me it has improved my character and it has made my life better and i think that's that's the goal of Freemasonry. That, and I think that's always been the goal of Freemasonry, right? The, the development of man, continual self-improvement. And I think where we, where we harmed ourselves is exactly what you alluded to, right? Which is let's get Masons in the door, no matter what their interests are, no matter if they have any any uh, drive towards self-improvement or learning or fellowship let's just get them in the door and get them paying dues and i think we are we are reaping the rewards of those errors now you know it's uh it's interesting uh every lodge in in washington i i don't know if this holds true everywhere but if a Mason is suspended or expelled, every lodge within the jurisdiction receives notice of that. Well, and 
you know, those notices should be very rare things. And unfortunately today, they're not. But if you trace the men who those letters are referring to, they can all be traced to a time, or virtually all of them, when our craft in Washington decided to open the floodgates and just get members. And now we're reaping, or we've reaped the results of that. I think uh, uh, we're on the upswing from that now, but it took a long time. And I think it did quite a lot of damage to the craft. And I think we sometimes get confused, right? Freemasonry and a lodge of Freemasons is not the building, right? And we, we sometimes think, well, we got to pay for this building. So it takes this many men and so on and so forth. No, the lodge is the men, not the building. And we can have great Freemasonry if we've got three really committed Freemasons sitting in somebody's garage, enjoying each other's company and talking about Masonry, right? That's masonry. And we can have a huge lodge of 200 men sitting in a beautiful lodge room doing nothing but reading minutes and paying bills and having no Masonic education and not really any fellowship. Well, it doesn't matter what that building looks like or how much money we have or how many men we have, that's not Freemasonry. And that lodge isn't practicing Freemasonry. And so I think we've always got to make sure whatever we're doing, that we're practicing Freemasonry. You know, that, uh, and I, I always hate to, to disagree with a, a fellow Cameron, but I do think you know, that's the, uh, that is probably the, the area where I've had uh, the most disagreements with brethren, just in my personal Masonic journey is the, the correlation between a lodge and a temple. Uh, certainly, you know, by definition, a lodge references the group of people, not the building. The building is its own entity um, that can be, in some cases, owned by Freemasons, or in other cases, a rented space, depending on on what it is. Um, but you know, having come. Being a, a Windsor Ontario Mason, right? We have the Windsor Masonic Temple here, which this year is celebrating its hundredth uh, anniversary. Um, and you know, I've talked to many, many other locations which have grand Masonic temples, most of which were built in the 1920s um, during that boom period of, of the craft. I've always been uh, very uh, hesitant to, or, or, you know, I've always been of the opinion that that as best as possible, we should try to maintain these temples, um, not necessarily by bringing in members that don't add to the craft per se, because that ultimately is self defeating. As you point out, you end up with less members overall. But um, you know, there are ways to develop and, and grow revenue in a Masonic temple outside of simply having dues, paying members. Um, and that does create, you know, a cyclical effect. There are, are many people in Windsor for whom the Windsor Masonic temple is 
you know, as much a part of their life as their home and their work. And they're not Masons. It's where they got married. It's where they went to school dances. It's where they saw shows. Um, but I also recognize, and, and many have pointed out that, you know, oftentimes the temple becomes an excuse to bring in membership that is not committed to the craft, which ultimately results in a loss of membership over time. Yeah, and I don't think you and I have any fundamental disagreement. Um, in the town where I live, our, our Masonic temple is is also a, a pretty major uh, temple. It's uh, purpose-built for the York Rite, has a lot of interesting features uh, related to, to its degrees. And you know, I would not want to see it go away or be converted to other other use than Masonic. But I think that there's better ways to pay for it than driving for more membership, right? Here in Washington, for example, uh, we can we can rent our buildings for outside events, you know, and and some of our temples, excuse me, have started uh, uh, little wedding businesses, right? And it's pretty amazing how much money they can make hosting weddings in their Masonic temples. And, uh, and I think that if we look at things like that and we become successful at it, then we are so much less inclined uh, to push for members to help pay the bills, right? If our building is actually making money for the lodge instead of instead of being subsidized for the uh, for the lodge. Should Freemasonry, and this is a question I've asked uh, different ways over, over the year, over the years of year and a half of this podcast, should Freemasonry be an enjoyable experience or a, uh, a sacrificial or sacrificial experience in this sense of, uh, or fulfilling another term, um, you know, exercise, for example, because I'm very lazy. Uh, I, I don't enjoy exercising at all. I'd rather never do it, um, but I do it because uh, it is a, a sacrifice in the moment that leads to benefit. Um, I do sometimes feel as though in Freemasonry, we've overemphasized or, or we, we've, we've tried to create such a quote unquote enjoyable experience. And we wanna make sure every brother is entertained and every brother enjoys his time that we forget to make sure it is, we forget to explain the fulfilling nature of some of the, the harder times in Freemasonry, whether it's uh, memorizing a long piece of ritual or whether it's sitting in a business meeting and you know listening to the minutes and going over bank statements and taking the time to you know taking the time to be an active participant in the administrative stuff that every you know master mason in in america and every mason in canada even entered apprentice has the right to be involved in Um, or do you think that there is a distinction between those two things or is it you know, an enjoyable experience can also be a hard and, and sacrificial experience. Yeah, I I guess I don't see the distinction between them. Um, 
if I can just use an example from my own own Masonic journey. So my home lodge is not uh, near where I live now. And so uh, at some point in my Masonic journey, I, I moved to where I now live. And, you know, that involved uh, joining a new lodge that was quite a lot different than my home lodge. Uh, and making all new friends with the with the brothers in the lodge and somewhat early in that experience somehow the the shriners <coughs> excuse me talked our lodge into running their uh one of their large fundraisers for them which was going to this community festival and uh providing the food for for uh, the participants, right? And and basically, so we're cooking we're cooking hamburgers and French fries as a lodge to raise money for the shrine, uh, who are nowhere to be found, right? And the thing was, none of us knew how to do it. We go in there, and we we open the open the uh, uh, sales window, and we're just bombarded with with people, and it's a a huge huge learning experience on the fly and a, and a tremendous job. And I remember though, I got home and despite how much work it was, it was this tremendous bonding experience, right? Because here we are, a dozen guys in this little room, we're sweating, we're working like you wouldn't believe and we're trying to learn as we go and, and we're cooking so much food that we get home and I didn't even come in the house. I just went into the garage and took off my clothes and everything because I'm covered head to toe to grease. And, but it was one of the greatest bonding experiences ever, right? And I got to know those guys so well and, and we really created these really strong friendships because we were thrown into this impossible situation and had to figure out how to make it a not impossible situation. And so I, I do think that it's a, it's a lot of both, you know, it, Freemasonry, some of it can be a struggle, but the struggle, if it's towards a shared goal, can also build really strong bonds of brotherhood. And yeah, I bring that up a lot recently because I think uh, we're seeing a desire, uh, especially amongst, amongst young men, um, for uh, for struggle and for purpose um, that is not being being reached out there in, in the world, you know, you're, you're seeing, for example, a lot of um, messaging now uh, from, you know, uh, there's just a book written called uh, The Crisis of Comfort. Um, you know, you, podcasts like Jocko Willink or David Goggins or Jim's, you know, their, their advertisement, quote unquote, or their emphasis is not on you know, do this because it's easy, do this because it's enjoyable. They are, are much more emphasizing the discomfort and challenge of whatever product it is they're selling or promoting. 
combined with the overall benefit um, at the end of it, as opposed to, and I do think that's an area where Freemasonry fell down and that connects to perhaps why we had trouble with membership or the types of members we were getting is for a long time we emphasized um, this is a fun place to be, this is enjoyable, which it is. I've had a lot of fun in the craft, but I've also had plenty of times where it hasn't been fun and, you know, where it would have been more fun to be at home watching the TV, but it was more fulfilling. And I felt that uh, I was making the lodge a better place and the world a better place because Freemasonry does that by being in attendance. Um, you know, I just think that that's a message that, you know, this is hard but worth it, is a message that a lot of young men are really uh, uh, yearning for and, and finding in other areas. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, our Scottish Rite degrees here in the southern jurisdiction of the United States are, are a little different than, than in a lot of places. Uh, but emphasized throughout the degrees here is the fact that Freemasonry is labor, right? And that's touched upon in almost all the degrees. And, and I, think, I think that's true. I think it, it is labor, but you use the word fulfilling and, and I think that's exactly right. You know, it is a sense of accomplishment and a sense of pride when we're able to do something difficult. You know, that which I'm reminded of an old saying that that which comes uh, cheaply or freely is never valued, but that which we have to work for to have, you know, then we greatly value it. Speaking of value, let's turn uh, over to the never-ending Masonic debate in Ontario, and I'm going to assume Washington, I'm going to assume everywhere, uh, the price of dues, which you touch on, or not touch on, which is discussed very much in depth in your uh, paper, uh, which is, I 100% agree with you on that point. Um, not to bury the lead, but uh, yeah, talk, talk about you know, your view of the price of dues, at least as far as Washington State goes um, and what you've seen when visiting uh, and you know, why you think it's important that we re-examine uh, the price to be a Freemason. Yeah, so I learned when I, when I uh, was elected uh, junior grand warden just how good of records uh, the Grand Lodge of Washington anyway uh, keeps. I was aware that my, uh, my great-grandfather uh, was a Mason in the 1910s, he, uh, he joined. Um, and so I wanted to check his Masonic record and I, uh, I went up to the Grand Lodge office and found out where we kept them and started digging through the files and, and there it all was, you know. And I looked at what he was paying for his yearly dues. And if we were to adjust it for inflation, it was 
about $1,300 a year um, for his, his lodge. That same lodge still exists. The dues are under $100 uh, in, today's, in today's money. But when he joined, they were, they were way up there right over 1300. So it just seems to me that at some point, and we know, cause we can trace this towards the middle of the 20th century, Masonry was gathering in so many members after World War II, at least here in America, they were just flooding our lot, right? And so there was no need perceived to raise the dues. And so we started this crazy habit where we just don't raise dues anymore, right? We have a lodge a little bit south of where I live now and their dues for that lodge are actually lower than the Grand Lodge assessment, right? So when they collect dues from one of their brothers, they're actually losing two bucks, right? Because <laughs> the Grand Lodge assessment is $2 higher than what they're charging. They're charging the brother to, to even be a member of the lodge. And, and that's crazy. So that's why it started because we didn't need the money, but we got in this weird habit. And now it seems that in far too many lodges, if a guy goes in there and he says, look, we're not making it, we got to raise the dues. Well, then the story is, well, if we raise the dues, everybody's going to leave or nobody will join. And none of that's true. And I know that none of it's true because another lodge fairly close to where I live now, it really did hit financial rock bottom uh, two or three years ago, right? And so they didn't raise the dues per se. Instead, they passed they kept the dues where they were and they passed a lodge assessment on top of that. And it was a multiple of about four times of their regular dues, right? So it was quite extreme. And I remember sitting in those meetings because I was the district deputy at the time. And it was these same old arguments, right? People are gonna leave, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna demit this lodge and so on and so on. Well, they did it. They managed to vote that in and not a single brother left that lodge. So these concerns, they just aren't, aren't founded, right? Men will support their lodge financially if they find value in it. And the only thing that I think we really forget about here in Washington, and I assume it's this way everywhere, is we do honestly have some brothers who for whatever reason, they've fallen on really hard times and they really can't pay a meaningful amount of dues. Well, you know, in, in this jurisdiction and I assume all others, we can remit those dues, right? If a brother honestly can't pay those dues, we have the ability to not charge him those dues and we should do that, you know, but the brothers who can pay dues shouldn't be paying dues. And if we have some brothers who for whatever reason can't pay dues, then as a lodge, we should 
you know, give them a pass on that. Yeah, I, yeah, just to what you said, I've not seen any evidence that increase in dues um, negatively impacts uh, lodge attendance or, or lodge strength. I think that is a, uh, you know, if, if from an economics term, it dues strike me as a pretty uh, elastic uh, expense. People would, you need to go very, very high before people start to reconsider their membership. Um, you know, I'm sure there would be a point at which it would take place, but four or five times the amount when dues are so low, I don't see that being a particularly, uh, uh, I don't see that having a, a significant effect on, on lodge health or lodge membership or anything like that. Yeah. Now, um, you also talk about, uh, and this is something I agree with as well, uh, in, in your paper, you know, bringing Freemasonry outside of, bringing the lodge outside of the temple, uh, yeah. which we've done, you know, here in Ontario, we've, we've done camping trips, uh, special events. Um, you know, why, why is it, do you think, that so many lodges seem to have difficulty uh, uh, with that step, with bringing the lodge and the membership outside of the temple. Um, is it just nerves? Is it the fear of trying something new? Where do you think that hesitance can come from? Yeah, I, I think you just touched on it right there. I think, I think, uh, uh, guys especially worshipful masters you know are afraid well what if this fails well it probably won't but if it does you know what's the harm really i think it's really hard to to sit in a business meeting and build the brotherhood that freemasonry is legendary for right that stuff gets built outside of the lodge for me and the example i gave earlier it was built in a in a hamburger stand right but but it can be all kinds of things you know you mentioned camping camping is great and a lot of lodges do it but one lodge i'm a member of you know they're a little nervous about camping so instead they go and, and they rent a, a great big house on the, uh, on the ocean somewhere and they, they share that for a weekend and they call that camping, you know, so we can vary this stuff and, and make it fit uh, the lodge and, and the men in the lodge. Uh, well, yeah, I just, I, I meant, I said camping, but really that's not true. We rented a cabin. We did it a couple years. Uh, the, uh, the first year we did it, uh, Worshipful brother Igor Struken, who's been on the podcast a few times now, he uh, the the cabin we rented was next to like an old barn, and he uh, he climbed to the roof of the barn, and there's a, a square and compass etched into the uh, square and compass is etched into the the wood somewhere in that barn. So there you go. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and and I just think. The other thing, if we, if we start to think creatively, you know, 
one complaint I, I hear a lot is, well, we're, we're doing a degree and, and the guys on the sideline aren't paying attention or even worse, you know, are, are doing something that's kind of distracting from the degree. And, you know, we all agree that that's bad, but part of this too is we need to make those experiences a little more interesting, at least from time to time, right? And so one thing that, that one of my lodges started doing is we go out in the woods in the summer, right? And we confer fellow craft degrees in the woods, in the middle of the night with torches, right? And let me tell you, that candidate is getting a degree experience that he's never gonna forget. And beyond that, all the guys who might otherwise be bored of seeing their, their 200th fellow craft degree in their Masonic career, well, let me tell you, they're excited now because they know that next summer they're going to be sitting there trying to figure out how we pull off the most amazing fellow craft degree ever in the woods in the middle of the night with no artificial light, right? Just with firelight. And that gets the candidates excited. It gets the men of the lodge excited. And if we can just think out of the box on some of these things and once in a while get out of our temples, we're gonna find that we really reinvigorate our lodges. The, which that, that sounds awesome, by the way. I've, I've been lucky enough to attend one outdoor uh, degree. Oh my God, it was like 900 degrees. I remember that day. it was so hot. We're all in, and they didn't do it at night, which would have been better. It was in the middle of the day. And it was, uh, you know, we're all in our suits or whatever it is. It was, it was brutal but another example of a a not enjoyable experience that was ultimately enjoyable or fulfilling uh at the end of it because we all have a story of you know sunburned faces and needing to get your suits dry clean because it was it was warm i remember that uh so the reinvigoration of the craft um I guess, do you think that before COVID-19, like if you're looking at like say graph of, of the craft, do you think that, that COVID-19 and the subsequent need for, you know, lockdowns and canceling in-person Masonic events, moving to the virtual space so much, so much more emphasis on virtual meetings, things of that nature. Do you think that that, set back the the or that that's negatively impacted reinvigorating formation or positively impacted it do you think that there may actually be benefits to the craft coming out of COVID-19 and returning to uh in-person meetings will we still be more involved in the digital space I guess how do you see the last two years as impacting the craft's reinvigoration and rejuvenation so in, in my mind, 
while the last two years have been really, really tough, ultimately, over the long term, this is going to have a tremendous positive impact. And the reason I think that is when we were talking earlier about dues, right? Lodges not raising dues is a habit that was acquired over decades, a bad habit. You know, lodges uh, not providing Masonic education and, and only talking about bills and, and minutes and correspondence, right? Those things are, are bad habits. And some events that we do that are no longer attended, right, by, by, uh, by the vast majority of Masons, those things are, are habits. And all these habits developed over time, and a heck of a lot of them are bad habits. And the way I see it, they all went away, right? Lodges in Washington State didn't meet for 14 months. We don't have any bad habits anymore because we didn't do anything for 14 months. We don't have any weird little traditions that outlived their usefulness decades ago because we didn't meet for 14 months. So I see it as a perfect opportunity to restart as we reopen and restart without any of the bad habits that have crept into masonry over the past few decades, right? So another example, we're all gonna have to practice doing degrees again now that we can start doing degrees again. Because let me tell you, you forget your part after, after uh, 14 months. You might still remember the words, but everything's sort of sort of out there. So this is a perfect opportunity to restart, to practice, to ask ourselves, how can we assure that our candidate is getting the very best degree experience possible? Because we're restarting everything. And I think that restart is gonna prove extremely valuable for Freemasonry over the longer term. Well, I, I, I think you're, not to create a, a boring podcast, but I think you're right. I think, yeah, a, a reset. Sometimes a reset is, is necessary, if not painful in the moment, but ultimately is a benefit in any situation to, to the long term, right? To It gives you a chance to get a bit of distance and reevaluate because, you know, inertia is a real thing in, in physics, but just in life. If you get into a certain habit, it's very hard to break that habit. And the silver lining to you know, the shitty situation that is COVID is it forced us to, uh, you know, we, we didn't, it forced us to stop those habits. We didn't have a choice in it kind of thing. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, making a meaningful degree experience. Um, do you have any advice as to some things that you would consider uh, adds meaning to, to a degree? My advice, the one piece of advice I, I always give, because I think the deacon is the most important officer, but especially the most important part of a degree. Um, one little thing I always advise, and this wasn't from me, this is something I saw another deacon do, and I've always suggested it, 
uh, is always maintain contact with your candidate. So, you know, I, I believe this is statement. I've been to degrees in the States and it, it seems to follow a similar pattern. You know, in Ontario, there are parts in a degree where a candidate will be kneeling, will be still not moving. And there can be a real tendency for uh, a deacon to, um, you know, let go of the candidate. And I always suggest, you know, if the candidate is kneeling, keep a hand on the shoulder. If the candidate uh, is speaking to somebody, an officer, whatever it is, you know, keep a hand again on the shoulder somewhere so that the, the candidate knows uh, that you're present and that you are, you know, a trustworthy guide. So that's my two minutes of Masonic advice. Deacons, maintain contact with your, uh, with your candidate. It'll mean a lot to the candidate. As for you, anything you've seen or any advice to lodges on how to create a meaningful degree experience? Yeah, certainly. And before I start, though, I do want to touch on on your uh, your advice of, of maintaining physical contact. And and yeah, I agree. I think that's that's vitally important uh, that the senior deacon keep uh, keep in physical contact with the candidate the entire time. Uh, I might be a little strange. I don't know. Uh, but no matter what my position has been in masonry, I've always angled to, uh, to get appointed to that senior deacon role. Uh, when, a, when a degree was coming up, if, if uh, for whatever reason, the senior deacon wasn't going to be able to, to be there. So, so it's I so do. Uh, it's such an important, it's such an important office. I think it's so underappreciated. My, my, Great Masonic uh, hobby horse is uh, how I, I think uh, underappreciated the deacons are, and even the deacons themselves. I don't think they seem to appreciate the responsibility or the privilege of being the guide. You know, you're the person who is, um, you, you know, you're the first voice uh, candidate's going to hear, uh, at least outside while they're waiting to go in. Uh, you're the guide who's either metaphorically or really literally keeping them safe. Like the, the privilege of being that for a new Mason, I think is highly uh, undervalued. Yeah, and I think, as you say, in our lodges, that is, uh, uh, you are metaphorically keeping them safe. Uh, in our outdoor degrees, whether, whether it be the torchlight degree that I mentioned earlier or any of our other degrees, uh, as because we do have in Washington a long tradition of doing degrees outdoors, <clears throat> you know, so that metaphysical safety actually becomes physical safety in an outdoor degree, right? Because you're out in the woods, there's rocks and stuff, you know, and so you the the deacon has to actually uh, avoid those things and help the candidate avoid those things, and so. So yeah, I just think it's a it's a really important role. But beyond that, you know, I am a, a big fan of the uh, the use of a chamber of reflection uh, in Washington. We have lodges that use that. I think that's great. We do it prior uh, to the ritualistic start of the degree, uh, so that it, because it's not a part of our standard work, but we are able to do it. Um, I'm a big fan of lodges doing uh, the second and third degree, especially in costume. Um, 
we have a long tradition in the states of, of Yorkrite masonry. And Yorkrite, at least in this part of the country, has really elaborate costuming for, for some of their degrees. And so, uh, so Blue Lodges can generally borrow those costumes and, uh, and put on a degree, you know, dressed as the, especially in the third degree drama, dressed as the, the men uh, they're representing. And I think that adds value. One thing that's kind of always sad to me is if you see a lodge, it comes to the lecture portion of the degree and, and they seat the candidate all by himself. And the, the fellow doing the lecture is speaking to him. Well, in my view, we ought to pull some more chairs up there, surround that new candidate, especially with the worshipful master, you know, and, uh, and the fellow who's going to be his mentor moving forward. And then I think, and this is my own personal experience again, I became an entered apprentice mason a day or two after that. I was taken uh, by my lodge to watch another fellow get, get a, his entered apprentice degree. And a couple of elderly gentlemen from that lodge we were visiting took me aside after the degree. And they explained one little snippet of the lecture to me and what it meant to them personally, right? And that taught me it, and it was only a five minute conversation, right? But it, it taught me how to look at our ritual and how to look behind the veil that's in front of our ritual. And that was just such a powerful thing that is, has stuck with me all these years, right? And, and so I think if we can do all those small things, we put them together, we create a, a really powerful degree for, for a new initiate. It's this, it's always the small things, right? It's my, it's, you know, there's no such thing. People have this idea that a great degree or a great meeting or great, whatever it is, is based on the grand gestures and the grand moments, but it's just a lot of little things done well that uh, result in, you know, uh, a meaningful degree. Yeah. Now, uh, moving forward, I guess, uh, you know, a good place to, to end. You, you mentioned before, you know, you think the solutions to Freemasonry, uh, and I agree, involve first looking into the, looking into the past to see how it was done well before. Um, so taking those lessons from the past and moving forward, as we resume our in-person meetings, um, as we resume the craft, what do you see uh, for the future of Freemasonry? Um, especially if we kind of follow the blueprint or the ideas in, in your paper, where do you see Freemasonry going? Oh, I, I think, and I've always thought the, the future of Freemasonry is, is bright. You know, I think if we look at the long history of Freemasonry, right, it's never been a steady curve or a steady climb upwards. It's never been flat. It's always been up and down, right? And I think that, that we have been, frankly, 
on a on a downward uh, trajectory for quite a few years now, but I think that we're turning that curve. I think that that we will turn that curve. There's no doubt in my mind. We always have in the past, and I think we're going to to have that bright future. But I think what it's going to take is it's going to take the efforts of committed masons, committed lodges. And I think the Grand Lodges have a lot that they need to do as well, right? And, and I'll just give you one example. Masonic education has always had a vital role in, in Freemasonry, right? In Washington, in our ritual, the master is reminded twice in every single meeting that it's his job to provide Masonic education, right? And when we installed him, he knelt at the altar of God and swore that he would provide Masonic education to the members of his lodge, right? But we have far too many lodges in this jurisdiction that provide zero Masonic education. They don't even make an effort towards that. But part of the problem is this Grand Lodge has a little book it's called the lodge officer's handbook right and it's not rules or anything but it's best practices right and we publish in there a sample agenda and you know where masonic education is on that sample agenda published by our own grand lodge well it isn't right and so can we blame our worshipful masters for not providing it if they're taking that sample agenda that they got from the Grand Lodge, following it, you know. So I, I think that I think that our future is bright. Well, I don't have any doubt that our future is bright, but it's going to take the work of all of us, including our very difficult to turn Grand Lodges. They need to recognize that some of these bad habits were developed at their own encouragement and start looking at what's provided. And if what's provided isn't good for the craft, stop providing it. I agree completely. And with that, uh, once again, everybody watching, uh, head on down to the description where I've linked uh, Right Worshipful Brother Bailey's paper, The Future of Freemasonry, which is actually a talk that he provided first in Washington State, um, and now he published as uh, a paper. It is well worth the read for any jurisdiction. I never do this, so I'll mention this, or I always, I, I'm batting about 50%. If you liked this, there's a like button, subscribe, comment, uh, I have a Patreon page if you want to send me money, all that good jazz. Uh, and with that, right, worshipful sir, I appreciate your time very much. Thank you, brother. I appreciate everything you're doing to work on our craft.